Wanted to talk to Andrew Greif about it right now from the uh, Oregonian and Oregon Live. Follow him on Twitter at Andrew Greif. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Fair to say that this is the uh, greatest quality of women's college basketball this state has ever seen? I think you're right there. I, I wrote something similar that it could be um, this way in December before the Pac-12 season started. And since that point, Oregon has lived up to its kind of um, billing as a top-two team in the conference. Obviously, they're, they're number one right now in the standings with two games left in Oregon State. It was a transition year. Everyone knew that, and yet they're only, um, what, two games back from Oregon. Uh, they're tied for third with UCLA. This year has been excellent for them as well. And so the, the programs, while they've had you know, individual success um, apart from one another, they've never overlapped with this kind of uh, shared success. And so this is a very rare thing that's happening between Oregon and Oregon State right now. I got to watch a little bit of the game Monday night when the Ducks played UCLA. Andrew, I was impressed with the electric atmosphere that Matthew Knight had. I saw over 7,000 fans were there for that uh, high-profile game for top 10 teams, the Ducks and the Bruins. Uh, what was that atmosphere like, and then what was it like seeing Oregon have that big lead and then the Bruins come back to force OT, but the Ducks stiffen up in the end and get that victory? It was The atmosphere was... Uh, the best that Kelly Graves can remember coaching in his four years um, with the Ducks. I mean, he, uh, he took the mic for senior night after the game ended and and thanked the fans, saying that when he started, he could basically he knew all the fans by their first names. There were so few of them, and now that was the second largest crowd to ever see an Oregon women's game at Matthew Knight Arena. So it's uh, it's pretty remarkable the difference, and it made a big difference down the stretch. I mean, it was it was very loud. I mean, I would put it on on par with some of the noise being made at men's games over the years that I've been to. Um, it was it was one of those games where you figured Oregon would probably pull it out, even when it got tight, just because this is a team that really hasn't backed down a whole lot all year. Um, but still, that, that they won it is it's still a statement game, a statement victory, because there's not often that uh, many years that Oregon sweeps UCLA, you know, especially a really good top-10 UCLA team. And they've beat them now on the road, at home, uh, you know, we talked a lot in the preseason about how this team was so young. How would they handle moments like that? Could they come back and could they hold on to wins? And you saw it slip away, 19-point lead. You know, then they were trailing by three, but they found a way to win. I think that's a real testament to the this team that really plays older than its years. I see Oregon's record right now, 25-4 and four overall. And those four losses have come at the hands of a pair of top five teams back in the non-conference season, Louisville and Mississippi State, then losing at Corvallis by six points, which is completely understandable, uh, and then losing at home to Stanford, who was a top 25 team at the time. Now, that was a 13-point loss, and it was at home, so that had to have been disappointing. But those are four pretty high-quality losses, are they not, Andrew? And what does that say about Oregon's ability to compete at a high level nationally across the board? Yeah, those are definitely four quality losses. Um, Stanford was number one in the conference at the time. That put them in the first place when they won that game. And that was a game where they had uh, Brittany McPhee scored 19 consecutive points to, to end the game. Wow. I mean, it was it was pretty unbelievable circumstances of that one. Oregon didn't have Lexi Bando for Stanford. They also didn't have her for that Oregon State loss. They have her back now. And the schedule that Oregon played in November, where they played, as you alluded to, the Mississippi State's, Louisville's, and also a top-20 team twice in Texas A&M um, kind of steeled this team uh, for what was to come, and you, you can tell that experience has helped them. Um, I don't think they're going to be 
uh, cowed by the NCAA tournament and the pressure on them there. It certainly didn't matter to them last year. And this year, with all the kind of the way they backed it up, I certainly don't think it should affect them this year. Sabrina Ionescu as a sophomore, so fun to watch. And fifth in the nation in assists right now. Just how good is Ionescu, not only as a, uh, as a player on the floor, but what she brings in terms of leadership to this team? Yeah, she's, I've, I've watched a couple games this year in person where uh, she's taken over in stretches and, and basically said, we're not going to lose this one. And that was the case against UCLA. She scored seven points in overtime. Uh, didn't have a turnover in 42 minutes. I mean, 12 assists, I believe, six rebounds. She's she's obviously the NCAA's triple-double uh, leader all time with nine. She's only a sophomore. Um, but I think that not just her raw physical skills that allow her to do that, with some of the things that her coaches rave about is just, you know, the leadership and that um, she's not going to let people um, kind of let the team down when she's on the floor. She kind of pushes, pulls people along, pulls her teammates along to kind of match her standard, and I think that's really important for this team. Um, and, and clearly, Oregon's responded well. I mean, she can get careless with the ball. That's one of her kind of knocks is that uh, maybe she tries to do too much, but I think that uh, more often than not, she is always seems to be in the right place, doing the right play at the right time. Andrew Greif of the Oregonian joining us here on the Quack Attack. Ruthie Hebert had 33 consecutive made field goals. How does that happen? <laughs> well, she she had against Washington and Washington State when it all began. Uh, those are two of the two of the worst defensive teams in the conference, and they didn't really have anyone inside to challenge her when she wanted to set up low on the block, close to the basket. So she got lots of you know four foot, three foot shots against the Cougars and Huskies that obviously started things off well for her. Uh, and then against, I was I was actually surprised against USC that um, she was able to get exactly where she wanted to go to. It's obviously a, a guard-focused offense, but they have a pretty good post in Kristen Simon, and, and she still got wherever she wanted. Um, you, you knew that it wasn't going to continue for very long at UCLA. Monique Billings is too good of a post and to allow her to go 12 for 12 or something like that again. But, again, it just shows we think about the shot and, and the made field goal, but what the streak was really a testament to was how she worked herself in the position to get close to the basket despite everyone knowing the ball was going to go to her, uh, and she still got to her spot. So I think that's a, a sign of a very savvy post player. I know they got two road games before the Pac-12 tournament begins, but uh, considering what they've accomplished so far and considering that they made that surprising run to the Elite Eight last year as a 10 seed, what are expectations that this team has for itself as they hurdle toward the postseason? I think that... You know, if they're being honest with themselves, the expectations are to advance as far as they did last year, if not farther, because this year, unlike last, they will have the benefit of home court advantage. Obviously, the NCAA bids do not come out until Selection Monday for the women, which is, I think, March 12th. Um, however, it's almost all but assured that Oregon will be a top 16 seed and host uh, the first two rounds, you know, rounds of 64 and 32 at Matthew Knight Arena. Last year, Oregon went all the way to, to Durham, North Carolina, uh, to, to play their two games, and they came out winners. So considering they'll be on their home court, I think that that gives them a big boost. And then if they're in the West region, they would go to Spokane, and that obviously is not that far of a trip for, for Ducks fans and for Kelly Graves and Adi Gilden are forward. There's a lot of connections to Spokane. So the road seems to be setting itself up well if they do get slotted in the West region for them to you know, play 
into the Final Four potentially. Now, that doesn't mean the matchups will be easy. We don't know what the matchups will be, and this is a matchup-based sport. But certainly you can see why a run of the Elite Eight, again, would, would have to be kind of what a lot of people are thinking about. Andrew Greif of the Oregonian joining us. Andrew, let's pivot to the Beavers. I know you've been covering them this season as well. They currently also riding a winning streak of five games that also included an overtime win over UCLA recently, and they'll finish the season on the road at Arizona and Arizona State, sitting at 21-6 and six overall, third in the conference. What do you make of the Beavers' season to date so far? Very impressive because without some of the Pac-12's Defensive Player of the Year last year, Gabby Hanson, Sidney Weiss, the guard, who was um, really the, the motor of the team the last couple of years, without them there was an open question about you know, the leadership and the defense, and they've done a fantastic job um, filling those roles. I think that Marie Gulich, the, the center, she is probably one of the most underrated players uh, in the country. I mean, I think she gets her due in the conference, but uh, she is she's kind of the one constant every single night who will get points and rebounds and blocks where everybody else kind of has off nights or on nights around her. They kind of rotate. You know, some nights it's Katie McWilliams who's on, Sometimes Michaela Pivik, sometimes Taya Corisdale, uh, Kat Tudor, but you always know Gulich will be there. And I think that's been so critical uh, to have her be that kind of rock of the team this year because she was really the, one of the very few uh, returners who you could point to as being um, just a consistent presence coming up back from last year. And she's, she's actually improved quite a bit. So I, I think that this has been a really good coaching job by Scott Ruick because of all the questions entering, and yet here we are uh, late, late in the, in the regular season, and they are tied for third and still, you know, a force. And next year they're going to be extremely good again. They get Destiny Slocum, the national freshman of the year last year, who's redshirting. They get her. It's going to be actually a really fun couple years to see Oregon, Oregon State, you know, kind of, I think, trade shots at the top of the conference. Last thing for you, Andrew, I'm just curious the dynamics of covering uh, two excellent women's college basketball programs after spending, you know, nine to ten months of the calendar year deep in the heart of Oregon football. Uh, what's that been like? What are the kind of the differences or similarities or or the uh, journalistic practices of, of covering college hoops? You know, it's um, I, I like it because I like variety. And so it's nice to have two different teams and. Um, you know, when one team uh, was, you know, losing, and not, not that these other teams have lost very much, but, you know, the other team well, would, be, would invariably be on some kind of hot streak. And so it's been actually fun to bounce back and forth. The teams have very distinct personalities, and they're different personalities. Um, and I think that's kind of fun to contrast that, even just for myself. Um, and I've really enjoyed just kind of having to know what, you know, 28, 30 uh, athletes and several coaches instead of just instead of just one staff. So it hasn't been a whole lot different in terms of logistics of how I go about covering it, but I just enjoy um, covering two very relevant uh, teams nationally, and because they they are they do have you know different DNA, and yet they kind of show up at the top of the conference the same regardless. So it's it's fun. And while I get a chance to talk to you on the phone, I want to also. Just get your thoughts on what Mario Cristobal has done with that football program coming out of his first signing day and uh, filling out his assistant staff with Alex Mirabal, a longtime friend of his. Uh, you had a piece about that uh, on Oregon Live yesterday. I encourage readers to go check that out. But what have you made in your um, talking to Mario 
since he's been named the head coach and everything he's been brought through since? You know, I think that every move um, from Mirball being the 10th assistant coach, uh, this is the extra assistant in past years. They only had nine. This year they had 10. People kind of developed that 10th role however they saw fit. And I think adding Mirabal along with the kind of focus of the recruiting class, which was so much on the line play, is a reflection of Cristobal himself and his vision for the program, which involves beating people up up front and playing bully football. Um, that's something that is, is obviously coming straight from his experience at Miami, at Alabama. That's the way he was taught. And while the kind of perimeter speed and the up-tempo offense and things that we've come to expect from Oregon over the last 10 years uh, will remain, I, I do think that what he wants to do is mold at least the interior into something that he's more um, more used to. And I think the power, uh, the strength, the kind of more physical play up front on both the offensive and defensive lines is something that it comes from Cristobal directly. I think that's exactly um, a sign that this is his program because, you know, I don't know how another coach would fill out their staff, how do they use that 10th role, but with Cristobal coaching the offensive line as a whole, Mirabal coaching guards and centers, and then a graduate assistant coaching offensive tackles, that's a pretty good indication of the attention they're going to pay um, to the kind of the, the road graders up front and how much they want them to play a role. So I, I think you can kind of see Mario Cristobal's whole career path and the things he's focused on his entire career on the moves he's made since taking over. Yeah, I, I personally like the sound of that because – you know, in this day and age of spread offense and speed on the perimeters and, and vertical passing games, yes, that you got to have that to some degree. But to have toughness inside on both sides of the ball to win the trench war, especially with teams like Washington, your rival to the north, that always has you know strong play in the trenches. That's got to be an area that Oregon stresses as a. Uh, as a point of emphasis, does it does it not? I mean, is it could this be the way that Oregon wins differently than other teams in the conference? Yeah, perhaps so, because you have um, the you know very up tempo teams, and then you have the Stanford uh, polar opposite. And I think Oregon, you know, would ideally, and I think other teams would try this too out clearly. But you'd love to kind of bridge that gap and be the best of both worlds. I think that Alabama did this best when they brought in Lane Kiffin. Uh, as offensive coordinator, and he overlapped with Cristobal, and you know they were able to turn that offense from a more outdated style into the up tempo, um, while also retaining the power element with Cristobal helping coach the offensive line, and so that's kind of the prototype for what it, what it can look like, the best of both worlds. But we also have to remember that's Alabama, where they have um, so much success recruiting, otherworldly success recruiting. How Oregon is able to take what sounds like an, an excellent idea in theory, actually put it on the field is something else. And that's obviously what we'll be looking forward to, to seeing, you know, in spring ball and then also in the fall. The problem we ran into is I bring Andrew Greif on to talk about Ducks women's basketball and Beavers women's basketball and how well they've been playing. And then I take a bite of the college football apple and I realize how much uh, we're all anticipating the season to get here again. And I look down and, We've had Andrew on for 20 minutes. Andrew, you've been so generous with your time, sir. Thank you for that. And uh, for fans you know, eager to see where the Ducks and Beavers go on the women's hardwood the rest of this year, both 
especially um, with, with high expectations and optimistic futures. Follow Andrew on Twitter at Andrew Greif and follow all of his coverage on the Oregonian and Oregon Live. Andrew, thanks a lot, man. Good talking to you again. Good talking with you and thank you.